The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I know in the past I've talked a little bit about my dad. My, my father was kind of the ultimate man's man. My dad was this caricature of masculinity, if you will. Uh, my dad was, uh, growing up, he was this thundering, powerful man. And oftentimes, if you had a dad like that, he was thundering and powerful. And if you were on the wrong side of that, it could be absolutely terrifying. Who wouldn't be terrified of a, of a muscle-bound, short-tempered logger? And that was my dad growing up. Uh, but in addition to that, that kind of ominous presence he carried with him, my dad was also a, uh, kind of a man's man. He hunted, he trapped, he fished, he forged, he camped, he panned for gold in the Rocky Mountains of western Montana. And, and in his life as a logger, he had a, a reputation that I didn't fully appreciate until I graduated from high school and started working in the woods and working with some of the same guys my dad had worked with over the years. And, and I realized my dad had a reputation that uh, he didn't take lip from anybody. And well into my father's adult years, it was, it was kind of known that you just did not mess with Gary Stevens. That was my dad. He was a firm disciplinarian. More than once, uh, I feared the consequence and faced the consequence of my own poor choices. I never was abused by my dad, but I, I definitely sat under the heavy hand of his discipline on more than one occasion. But, but my dad was also this involved father. He was an engaged parent. He wasn't passive. Along with my mother, he fathered us. And oftentimes in our childhood, my dad fathered us through some pretty challenging situations, some stormy seasons in life. And, and, and sometimes that involved words of rebuke, but sometimes it involved moments of tenderness. And that's where I want to kind of just pause this morning. My dad was not just this masculine disciplinarian logger. My dad had a tender side. He, he was a guy who wasn't afraid to give hugs and kisses, wasn't afraid to say I love you, wasn't afraid to pull us near to him. And my dad knew, he kind of inherently knew there were times for encouragement. There were times for tenderness. There were times for, uh, to instill confidence in his children. Some of my favorite memories as a kid is my dad had this drawer in, our, in his bedroom called the treasure drawer. And about once a year or so, my dad would pull that drawer out and we'd all gather as kids around my parents' bed and we'd all get on our knees around the bed and my dad would dump out that treasure drawer. And we heard the stories a thousand times, but he would take each little item, a gold coin that he got when he was a kid at Virginia City, Montana. And these little five, and, and in, the, in the, the treasures, there was always an item or two that was connected to one of us. And in these really cool, tender moments, my dad would take out these little items and they'd be like a little conversation piece and he would tell us the story of our family, the story of his love for us, the story of, of, of God's faithfulness through our life. And it was in all, and some of our favorite memories. And so when we were all adults, I'm the youngest of, of four, I grew up as the youngest of four, when we were all adults, one Christmas, we all got a package in the mail from my dad. It was a wooden box. And inside the wooden box was this very tender handwritten note by my dad and one item in the box. And it was the item that he said most reminded him of us. And he included that in the box with a note saying, share these memories, be tender with your kids, create folklore in your family, create a, create, a, create a tradition in your family, tell the story of who you are. And what my dad included in my box was the bracelet that was on my wrist when I got brought home from the hospital. And I still have that, and I've, and I've kept the treasure drawer, and my kids as well have been able to experience some of the tender moments that come from telling those stories. Now, in the middle of our text today, we have a tender moment. John, the apostle, who's kind of been heavy-handed up to this point, kind of direct, we have this moment in the center of our text today where we see the tenderness of John. Uh, early on in our text, he offers some instruction about the commandment of Jesus. And then later on in our text, he offers some application about what it means for us to love. But in the center of our passage today, John speaks words of encouragement. He speaks words of affirmation to instill confidence into the hearts of his hearers. And John loves his hearers. He loves them. 
And his love for them is a reflection of God's love for them. And as we listen to John's words to this original audience, we hear God's words to us as well. We're reminded today what love is, and we're reminded today as we read our text what love is not. We're reminded that in God, his love for us, we're also reminded that we are challenged not just to receive God's love, but to love others like God loves us. Ultimately, what God is telling us in our passage today is simply this. As someone who is loved by God, we are to love others with the very love of God. If I had to summarize our text in one sentence today, that's what it would be. As men and women who are loved by God through his son Jesus, we are called to love others with the very love of God. If you remember last week, John's text was pretty heavy-handed. I got off the pulpit last week, and I thought, man, that was kind of a pretty heavy-handed, direct, aggressive text, but that's how John laid it out for us. And, I, and as I look back at the passage, I'm reminded of this, this thing that John said at the very end of our passage last week, beginning in verse 3 of, of chapter 2. John said, And this is how we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And so I I look at that phrase of John in this text. It it, it leads up to these verses that we have today. John says, those who know God will keep his commandments, simply put. And those who claim to know God but don't keep his commandments, those people are liars, and the truth is not in them. That's pretty pretty direct words by John. Uh, He affirms within those who keep God's God's commandments, the love of God is perfected within them. And so sort of the litmus test that John brings to the, to the believer today, he says the mark of those who are in Christ, the mark of those who, who are of God's elect are men and women who keep his commandments. So that begs the question, what are the commandments that we must keep? If, we are to, if the fruit or the evidence that we are in Christ is our willingness and our ability and our obedience to keep the commands of God, what is the command that we must keep? And that's what our text answers today. Here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. The first thing is the commandment to love. We see the commandment to love. Look at verse 10. What what is the commandment John's talking about? He said, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Underline that phrase if you're the kind of person that highlights your Bible. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Underline that, circle that, highlight that. Four times before this, John talks about the commandment of God. The the new old commandment of God. And then he kind of spells it out here in verse 10. The commandment is to love. In some regards, it's an old commandment. In some regards, it's a new commandment. But ultimately, the commandment of God for his people is that we are to love. And this is the very commandment of Jesus. If you go to the upper room discourses, Jesus was gathering with his disciples in that last night where he was betrayed, where they had the Last Supper. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to us, his church today, a new commandment I give you. If you love one another, that you love one another rather, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, he says, if you have love for one another. Matthew 22, Jesus speaks the great commandment. He's asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers, you all know this if you've been in church for any length of time. He said, here's the greatest commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is the command of God? Well, the center of Jesus' command is love. Love of God, love of of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and love of our neighbors, even those that are far from God. This love that we are to display as followers of Jesus is the singular distinguishing, identifying marker of what it means to be Christian. The world will know you by the way in which you love. Not our bumper stickers, 
or our t-shirts. I used to have a t-shirt when I was a youth pastor that said they will know us by our t-shirts. I thought it was hilarious because of the Christian t-shirt, but it's the love. It's the way that we love that is to set apart the body of Christ, the way we love others. I, I was reminded today and even this week about just this the very practical, pragmatic way we love others. And I was reminded of two people, actually, two people that, that are kind of important. Today's a special moment for both of them. Heather Templeton and Souther Parnell are, are two people that are a part of the Heritage family. Heather Templeton has been our children's ministries director for several years, and she's in a different season of life. She's transitioning off, and this is her last Sunday serving as our children's ministries director. Her and Richard, her family, are still a part of Heritage, but she has served for years just faithfully loving others with the very love of Jesus, loving the children of our church, loving the families of our church. In a very practical way, she's lived out this ethic. And I think it's summer. Summer has been this behind-the-scenes volunteer for years who has made coffee every Sunday, just made sure that we're a hospitable place that welcomes people with love. She's never asked for a pat on the back, never asked to be recognized. She's probably mad I'm mentioning her name right now. Today is her last Sunday, and she's moving to, to Wisconsin. And I was just reminded watching her serve today, it's like, man, that's just a very practical way. It's awesome to see the people of God loving one another with the very love of Jesus. I mean, if you look at the previous text that we, what, that we preached through last week, John, John encourages the believer to kind of do this self-assessment. Ask these questions of yourself to see if you're really in Christ. He says, do you say that you have fellowship with God? Do you say that you have no sin? Do you say that you have not sinned? Do you say that you know him? And then he leads us through this process of self-evaluation. But, but, but the very quick assessment... For those of us that gather here today, if we want to assess where we are uh, in our relationship with the Lord, how we're doing with walking as God would have us walk, there's a much simpler test that John kind of highlights today. It's simply this. Do you love? That's it. That's the question John asks us to ask of ourselves today. Do I love? Do I love God? Do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I love my neighbor? As someone who is loved by God, do I share the love of God with others? And John says this is both an old and a new commandment. And he uses the word commandment, singular. I read this week that John regards all the commandments as being summed up into one, this commandment to love. And the readers who would have heard this letter initially, 90 AD, they would have been familiar with this commandment. They knew that this was both a new and an old commandment. What does John mean by interplay with those words? Well, on one regard, it was, it was an old commandment. Because it was there since the very beginning of the Christian church. Jesus spoke this commandment in John 13, or you could say Matthew 22. So it was, it was an ethic to love from the very inception of the New Testament church. So in that regard, it was old. But in the regard that it was just a part of the New Testament church, it was new. But, but this audience, they would have had that commandment to love would have been germane to who they were from the very inception of the church. This letter was written about 90 AD. So this command of Jesus within his church to love uh, would have been something that would have been a foundational thing or a foundational truth that would have informed the church from its inception. So it's both old and new. And there's one other thing before we move on. I just think you can look at this verbiage in, in chapter, or verse, verse 9. There's a word picture. It's just in like half a verse, but I love the word picture that John paints for us here. He says, It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and to you, the second half of verse 9. Why, why, why do we do this New Testament? Why do we do this commandment? Why? He says, because the darkness is passing away and true light is already shining. The darkness is passing away and true light is already shining. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him or her there is no cause for stumbling. Howard Marshall, a, a New Testament scholar, in his commentary on 1 John, here's what he had to say, kind of just adding comment to that, that language of John. Listen to this. 
The picture here is that of a world in the darkness of night. But the first rays of the dawn, dawning sun have already begun to shine. More and more areas are becoming light instead of dark, and the light is getting brighter. There are still dark places completely sunk in shadow, but there are places where there is bright light, and it is here that the disciples of Jesus are to be found, walking in the light and themselves shedding light. I love that vivid, that vivid image that John paints. And it really, it's this image of us walking in light and being love. So the first thing we see is we see this commandment to love because someone who is loved by God is to love others with the very love of God. The second thing I would encourage you to notice as we get down into this middle section of our text is we see the confidence of God's people. We see John uh, speaking about the confidence of God's people. When I opened this sermon, I spoke about my father uh, and his, uh, his, his, the way in which he recognized there were times for tenderness. Though he was a disciplinarian, though my dad could be aggressive and bold, and though his words of discipline often fell heavy upon my shoulders, my dad recognized inherently that there were times as a father for tenderness. And, and he was liberal with his encouragement and love. And in the midst of this letter, which has been pretty heavy up to this point, there's this moment right now, beginning in verse 12, where it shifts into a thing of tenderness. It's John affirming his people. He's instilling confidence into them as men and women who belong to God. And he conveys all of this through a poem. And you can notice, and you look at the formatting in your Bible, clearly the formatting of how the text is laid out shifts because the genre shifts. It goes from being, uh, it goes from being um, um, an, uh, a discourse, a rational discourse, where John is kind of making a point, teaching a point, to, to this poem. He goes from arguing a position to offering a poem. And the poem is this, this just sweet words of encouragement to the little children and to the fathers and to the young men of his congregation. These words of encouragement, they really, to, the, to the, all the generations of his church, it's to the, to the, to the young folks, to, to, to the middle-aged folks, and to the old folks. He's speaking to his entire congregation, and he's doing so as a way to affirm them and, and instill confidence in them. They are a part of the family of God. He's been talking about those that have left, and in the next section, he's going to talk even more about those that have left the church. But here in this little poem, John is affirmed. He loves his audience. And it's a moment, it's a time for tenderness. And as I listen to these words, it's like, man, John raises the bar on what it means to be a pastor. I don't think in my whole entire life as a pastor, I have specifically written a poem for my church or my congregation. I've written poetry, but I don't think I've ever written a poem for my church. So today I decided to write a poem for you guys. You ready? Roses are red, violets are blue, Jesus loves you, so you should love others too. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That is my poem. Uh, but in all seriousness, John intends for this to be an intimate moment. It's intended to be an intimate moment. He goes from this kind of rational discourse, teaching this point, to just kind of stepping aside and saying, but man, I want to just breathe some life into you right now. It shows John's intent. It's a shift in his intent. He wants to communicate something intimate and something important. And the truth is, I do write poetry. And I remember when my wife and I had been dating for a year or so, and, and we, we, we were, had kind of made the decision to be exclusive with one another. We were both in our final year of college, and graduation was around the corner. We're kind of positioning ourselves to begin a life together. Hadn't had all those conversations yet. And, and, but we, it was pretty clear that, like, she was the girl for me, and I was the guy for her. And so maybe, like, in February of 1998, at some point, my wife tells me she loves me. Which is crazy now, because I know my wife is someone who's not necessarily very liberal with that sort of affirming language. It, it doesn't come natural to her. So to think back to her telling me she loved me, she was the first to say it. It's crazy. And you know what I said back to her? I said, be patient with me. What a jerk, right? 
what is wrong with me? But I just, you know, I just didn't want to have empty words. If I said I love you, I didn't want to just say it to be like a manipulative. I wanted it to be a reflection of the truth. And so then uh, we were getting near to Valentine's Day, and I'm thinking about our relationship. Like, yeah, I love this woman. Like, I always have, and I've known that. I've got to stop being afraid. And so I decided to tell my wife that I love her, but I did it in a poem. And so when it turned midnight, on February, when it turned February 14th, midnight, Valentine's Day, I wrote my wife a poem in the last three words of the poem where I love you. And I did that because I, I knew poetry was a way of allowing the author to be vulnerable. And I can be vulnerable through written word. John is being vulnerable through the poem he writes for those he loves. He, he is sharing with them in an honest way, and he's cultivating intimacy with this church. We, we could have said that up to this point, First John read sort of like a manual for Christian living, for self-consideration, whether or not you know God. But with this poem, John is lovingly pausing from that discourse, and he's instilling confidence in his people. He's affirming them that they can be confident in who they are in Christ. So you and I, when we read this text today, as believers, as followers of Jesus, as we look at this, sh- this swift genre shift, as we hear the vulnerability of John, it comes as a breath of fresh air. We, we're, we're, we're able to pause and just breathe in the beauty of being men and women who are loved by God. He loves us. He, he cares for us. So what is John saying specifically in, in these six stanzas to these three audience groups? He, he's, he's got confidence that his audience is in Christ. He knows they need assurance. I imagine it had been a difficult season for them. I imagine as people were leaving the church and and things were getting difficult, I imagine they were struggling a bit. And so John, he needs them to know that they are loved. They're loved by God. They're loved by him. Like a parent who recognizes a moment for for tenderness, John does that here. And I think about any any parent, I think what I learned about my dad, I think about as a dad now to two adult kids and a a soon-to-be 16-year-old, I look at my kids and I'm thinking, yeah, there's moments when I need to be tender. I remember talking to a father, and I put in my notes that a, a, a wise dad, but as I reflected back on this, actually the guy who gave me this advice was a guy who had failed out of ministry and actually had been a really poor example of a father. And I was talking to him after his whole ministry had blown up and he was kind of sitting in the ashes of his life, and I said, what, what, what advice would you give me? His family was, his kids were wayward. And he said, for every one word of rebuke, speak ten words of affirmation into the lives of your kids. What a practical bit of advice. And I think about John, who loves his church. They're like his children. And he just says, no, no I'm going to speak words of affirmation. I'm going to instill confidence into you because I love you. Little children, he calls them in verse 1 of chapter 2. Little children, again, he says in chapter, or verse 12. He's addressing all these people in his congregation. He's saying young people, old people, middle-aged people. He talks about the power of God to the young. He, he talks about the, the faithfulness of God to the old. He talks about uh, what it means to, to be in the presence of God to the middle-aged ones. Look at what he says to the little children. Your sins are forgiven for his namesake. He talks about the power of God to forgive sins. To the fathers of the, or the older folks in the church, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. He talks about the faithfulness of God. To the young men and women, the the middle-aged folks of his church, he says, you have overcome the evil when he talks about the presence of God. Then he repeats himself for emphasis. He says, let me tell you that again. Children, you know the Father. Fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. Young men, you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So this is not simply a manual for how to live the life of faith. This is a personalized note from a pastor to his congregation to affirm them, instill confidence in them. As someone who is loved by God, John is telling us, and as he told his original audience, and God is speaking through John, that as men and women who are loved by God, we are to love others with the very love of God. So we see this commandment to love. We see the confidence in God's people. And finally, we get to the third point. Uh, we, we see John painting this contrast of worldliness 
and godliness. And he calls us to godliness. He, he sees this contrast of, of worldliness and godliness. And John calls us to godliness. And so the question is, what, what is worldliness? John describes it as the love of this world or for the things in this world. Look at verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is the application. So after, after kind of instructing us on the commandment of Jesus, after affirming us that we are in Christ and should have confidence in that, now he gives us application. Here's how you are now to live out that truth. You know that the commandment is, you know that you're in God, so now don't love the world, but instead love others and love God. He offers a simple application. And when you consider all of our texts today, John, John is simply saying that, that Jesus commanded this, you are part of the family of God, so live it. John helps us to know what to love in this text by highlighting, first and foremost, what we're not to love. Look at what it says in, in the second half of verse 15 through verse 16. He says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So what are we not to love? Well, we're not to love the world. We're not to love the things of the world. For all that's in the world is not from the Father, but it's worldly. It's, 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 it's the kind of thing that a thief can break in, break in and, and steal, or rust can corrode, or moths can eat it. It's nothing. It's hevel. It's smoke. It's, it's, it's meaningless, to quote the author of, of uh, Ecclesiastes. It's, it's, it, don't get caught up in grabbing that, that word meaningless. If you go back and you look at the Hebrew in, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's this, it's this Hebrew word hevel, which literally means smoke. Smoke has the illusion of being something of substance. It's got a body, but when you grab it, there's nothing there. And John is saying, don't get caught up in pursuing the things of this world because it's, there's nothing to be had there. And so he tells us that we should... We should not engage in love of the world. What does love of the world look like? Well, it's the desires of the flesh. It's the desires of the eyes. It's the pride of life. The NIV puts it this way. For everything in the world, it is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The, the New Living Translation puts it this way. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, only a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. John is telling us that there is good love and there is bad love. John is telling us that there is a righteous love and there is an unrighteous love. In our world today, if you listen to the mantra of our world today, you have the right to define love in any way you choose to define it. You have the right to love in how you define it in any way, with anyone, in any manner, as long as you define it as such. I heard someone describe this as a self-authenticating love. We live in a world with self-authenticating love. Our culture today says that we are to, that love is love. Our culture today says that love wins, that we're to live our own truth. It says to find love however you choose to define love and engage in this love of your own making, however you choose to engage in this love of your own making, and we'll celebrate you as you do it. And we call all of it love. Our culture today says it's love to engage in a love of your own making. Our culture today says it's love to celebrate all expressions of self-authenticating love, even if they're an offense to God. And that's how all sorts of perverse love is legitimized. That's how a culture decays. It seeps into our world and it seeps into our church. But again, what does God say to us through John? He doesn't say love is love. He qualifies love. He, he doesn't say the love of your own making wins. He doesn't say choose your own truth and live your own truth. But what he does say, however, is do not love this world. 
What he does say to us today is the empty, flawed philosophies of love are perfecting my idea and understanding of love, which raises several questions. And I think these are questions we're intended to wrestle with this morning a little bit. The first question is, could our love be misguided? Is it possible for us to love in a misguided way? Is it possible for us to, ro- to love the wrong things? Should we define what love is and what love is not apart from what God's word has to say about it? If there's a wrong way to love, then the other question is, might our misguided loves keep us apart from God? It's a heavy questions to consider. John tells us what is and what is not to be loved. What is not to be loved are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. 37 times in the New Testament, that word for desire is used. 34 of those 37 times, it's used in a negative sense. It's desiring the wrong thing. So more often than not, when this word desires, which is also translated lusts, is used, it's a worldly or it's an ungodly desire or an ungodly lust. These desires or lusts are, are, are not from the Father, they're from the world. And so what's, what's John saying to us? Simply, he's saying, indulging in the lust of the flesh is not love. He's saying indulging in the lust of the eyes is not love. Boasting in the pride of life is not love. It is not love to do whatever makes you feel good. It is not love to seek after all that you want. It is not love to boast in all that you have. To redefine love as a lustful indulgence in the desires of the flesh or a lustful indulgence in the desires of the eyes or a boastful elevation of the pride of life, it's a sad, earthbound, and short-sighted vision of love, and it's not love at all. If you look back at the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, and if you look at Luke 4, the temptation of Jesus, you look at the, the temptation that the enemy puts forth for both Adam and Eve and for Jesus in the garden, you, or Jesus in the wilderness, you will see that he goes after the pride of the flesh, or the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's, there's nothing new under the sun. And so if you and I get caught up in this trap of, of making love about what makes me feel good or what I want or what I've got, if we make our life about doing only what feels good or doing only what we want to do in the moment or finding worth in all that we've got, we're going to be put in a very bad way. We, we begin to think that grabbing those things, the hevel, those meaningless things, we, 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 we convince ourselves that it leads to something, significance, value, worth, freedom. But in, in fact, if you've walked this path, as many of you have, I'm sure, you recognize that that lifestyle, that understanding of love, it enslaves you. And it's not love at all. It's imprisonment disguised as love. It leads to a humanity that is entrapped to this world, entrapped to the created, not the creator. I've been a pastor for about 20 years, and in that time, I've uh, been blessed, but it's also been a challenge to walk with men and women from this life into the next. As a pastor, you get invited to hospice centers to pray with people and sit with people on their last few days to counsel families, to care for folks. And I've had a lot of those conversations with people, those final conversations. You know, where you have everyone leave the room and you look, the, the person who knows they have a matter of days of their life left, and I'm sure some of you have been there, and you look someone in the eyes and you say, hey, you got a couple days. So what do we need to talk about here? What do you need to come to terms with? Who do you need to call? What, what wrongs do you need to make right? What sins do you need to confess? What questions do you need to ask? And I can tell you, in 20 years of doing that, not once have I ever heard someone ever say, I wish I would have done more of those things that, that gave me pleasure in the moment. Never heard anyone ever say that. In all those conversations over all these years, I've never once ever heard anybody ever say, I wish I would have put more time and money into doing the things that gave me the stuff I wanted. I wish I'd have acquired more stuff. Never heard it. I've never heard someone say, man, I can die in peace now because of my trophy case or my bank account 
or my possessions or my accomplishments that I've amassed. I've never heard it, not once. In fact, I've heard the exact opposite lots of times. Deep regret for living with the whims of the flesh, making decisions to indulge selfishly the desires of the flesh in the moment and the, and the rot that it created within the soul and the devastation that it created within families. Never once have I heard someone say, man, I wish I'd have just worked harder and got more stuff, ever. I've always heard them say, gosh, I wish I would have spent more time with the ones I loved. I wish I'd have spent more time pursuing the one who loves me. Never once have I seen someone on their deathbed look at their trophy case and say, now I can die in peace. Never. I'm mindful of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. We are called to love in a way that has a vertical nature to it, a heavenward love. The dot, it's not obsessed with the here and the now. It's a broader vision of love. It's an agape love. It's a self-giving love. The word here for love is agape, and kind of in, in the very center of our understanding of, of agape love, this Greek word agape is this idea of self-giving love. We're to love with a self-giving love. We can never outgive the giver of all good things. And so as men and women who are fully and perfectly loved by God, he fills our cup, our need to be loved is fully and entirely satisfied in him to the point of overflowing. We can't, we're, we're, the cup doesn't get empty when we love. We're, we're to, we're to as men and women who are fully and perfectly loved with this love, this self-giving love that we have through Jesus, we then live that out with a self-giving love in an agape way to the world around us. And the pride, or the, rather the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is a love that grabs and acquires and holds for its own. And it's the exact opposite of what we're called to do. We've been loved. So we're to love others with the very love of God. It's a commandment of Jesus. We, we can have confidence as men and women who are in the family of God that we are to love this way. And when we look at worldliness, we're to live in a way that's entirely different. And John closes finally with these last seven words at the end of verse 17. He says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. In the face of all this wrong way of loving, he gives us these seven words of encouragement to love in the right way. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. That word abide was, was used in, in verse 10 of our text today. Whoever loves his brother abides in light. It was used at the end of our poem today when he talked about abiding for the young men. It was used in our text today when he speaks about application. In our text next week, John's going to unpack even more this word abide. This is a favorite word of John, this picture of abiding. And abiding, as we said last week, is simply to remain connected to Jesus. Whoever remains connected to the Lord through daily communion, prayer, Bible reading, fellowship, obedience, whoever walks intimately with Jesus, that's the person who knows how to love. They will learn to love as God has loved them. They will walk as God has called them to walk. They will live out the will of the Father. They will walk in light and be loved. And over the years, I've discovered for me personally Maybe it's because I'm an American. Maybe it's my personality. I, I've tended to gravitate towards spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines that are disciplines of engagement, where I, I love to meet with the saints. I love to stand in the lobby on Sunday morning and have conversations with you, and that's awesome. We need to do those disciplines. I love biblical fellowship. I love sitting under sound teaching. I love, I love corporate worship. I, I, love, I, love, I love reading the scriptures and studying the scripture. I love to engage in my faith. But there's also another kind of discipline that I think maybe is a little bit more rare in our Americanized culture that I think might get to this issue here. Of us wanting stuff, the temptation we have to gather and accumulate and amass, I think what presses up against it is something that has been known as, as the disciplines of abstinence. Have you ever heard of this? 
The disciplines of abstinence are those disciplines where we don't acquire and indulge or engage, but rather like silence. Discipline of solitude. The discipline of fasting, of chastity, of secrecy, of sincerity. These disciplines of frugality, where we purposely don't go out and engage and take in, but we, we willfully and purposefully put ourselves in a position where we are absent and we deny ourselves immediate momentary pleasure for the sake of aligning our hearts with the Father's so we can live in a self-giving way. As, as shepherding elders, we, we sit down together every month and we, we, we teach and we kind of study as we talk about how to shepherd our congregation. A couple of months ago, we, we taught on this. We, as we talked as elders, we talked about these disciplines of abstinence, and I think they're pretty rare in the church today. Maybe that's an area of growth for you. If you find that, 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 that these, this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is an area you're struggling with, maybe, just maybe, the disciplines of abstinence are exactly what God would have you do so you can begin to develop that muscle of self-giving love. And I don't have a poem for you. I have my, my silly poem, but I didn't write a poem for you. But I, I think about the heart of John for this congregation that he's writing to. And I think about, it's, it's really the heart of a pastor for the people he loves. And I've not been here long. I've been here eight months. And I'm still learning this congregation. And I'm one of an awesome team of elders and pastors. So I'm just one of your pastors. But as I stand up here today, I want you to know, church, that I pray for you. I, I pray that you will know what it is to, to walk in light and be loved. Because I think that's where life is found. It's where joy is found. That we learn to live in this self-giving way. My desire for you today is to find encouragement. Those of you that are in Christ and you're here today, as John affirmed his congregation, I just pray that you, that you are affirmed today. If you're in Jesus, just hold on to Jesus. Cling to him. There's no other way. And as our world spirals into absolute decay, more now than ever does the, do the people of God need to cling to the, to, to the person of God in his son Jesus. I encourage you today to, to love not the things of the world, but to love with the very love of God, because as someone who is loved by God, you and I as the church are to love others with that love. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful. Thankful for your word. Thankful for the, the joy and the benefit it is for us to gather in this place week in and week out and to, to grow in our faith. God, to hear from you through your word. God, to be challenged. I pray, God, that you would bring conviction by the power of your spirit. We're not trying to, to, to bring condemnation. We read in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But God, if we do feel conviction, if in this moment, in this place today, we became aware of some sin in our life, God, I pray that it would lead to confession and repentance. God, that you would continue to sanctify us, mold us, shape us, your church here at Heritage. And God, I'm mindful, of course, of those men and women who are here today. Maybe they've never had a time or a moment in their life where, they, where they've done self-evaluation and they've thought about their life in this way, God. If there are, are some of us here today as we evaluate our life and we recognize that there's been an indulgence, a godless indulgence. God, if there's, if there's those of us here that have given in to the lusts of the eyes or the lust of the flesh or the pride of life, God, I do. I pray for conviction. God, I pray that there would be a confession of sin, that ultimately we would recognize that, Jesus, you are our righteousness. That, Jesus, you came and, and you, you bore our sin, and, and because of your life, your death, your crucifixion, and, and God, your, your ascension, that we have the great benefit of being declared righteous. And so, God, I just pray that we wouldn't try to bring a righteousness of our own to the equation, but today, God, that we would look to you. We would confess that, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I need a Savior. And so, Jesus, today, I pray that we would confess you as Lord that we would believe in our heart, God, that you raised Jesus from the dead, and that in so doing, we would go from death to life, and we become born again. And so, God, fill us with your spirit, work in us, mold us, shape us into the men and women you want us to be for your glory. God, help us as men and women who are loved by you 
to love the world around us with your very love. We pray these things in Jesus' name.